0: I'm Margie Boswell, and today's reading is from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Joey. I'm one of the lead pastors at Faith, which kind of feels weird to say because I've only been one of the lead pastors at Faith for about three weeks now. Um, So it's a little odd for me. It's probably a little odd for you too. Uh, I spent some time this week writing down uh, some professional goals that I had for 2017 as Jeff and I begin to lead faith into whatever God has for us in the future. And One of the things I wrote down was, uh, talk slower and preach shorter sermons and I totally failed first hour. <laughs> so I'm gonna try a better second hour. Let's, let's jump into this. As we move into a new year of new leadership, we go through this transition. Uh, we have new directions, new endeavors, new moves, but it doesn't necessarily bring with it new values. Unless your value is good coffee, and then it does bring new, you know, good coffee. Now, at faith, that was a joke, that was, that was a lot funnier in the first hour because they like Folgers, but apparently not as funny here. Um, at faith, Jeff and I are committed as we move into this next year to, to lead Faith Church to remain committed to our core values, to the four things that we have outlined as central to who Faith Church is. We fully intend to stay committed to, being, to keeping God at the center of our worship, to remaining God-centered, to remain a worshiping community that that thoughtfully engages with God's word to us, to serve one another in the world around us with God's presence and his word, to move across cultures and across geography with the the message of the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's that's what we're all about. So we've decided to take a few weeks at the beginning of this year uh, to just kind of talk through these values a little bit. Uh, Jeff set the stage for this discussion last week by uh, calling us once again to model ourselves after Jesus' example of humble leadership. And so in the next few weeks together, we're going to talk about what it means to be a community, uh, what our call to discipleship is, uh, our mission to extend ourselves across geography with the message of the gospel. But before we get into who we are, what we're called to do, what kind of people we're supposed to be, we need to take a week, just the next 40 minutes or so, to to pause and first look at who God is. We have to keep in mind who God is, because if we lose sight of God, if we lose sight of who God is, then all of this is pointless, You know, if we don't see God for who he really is, then there's no reason for us to assemble ourselves together or to give money or to donate time and effort. If we're not, as a people, committed to remaining centered on God, then you should go find another church because that's what church is about. So this morning, we're looking at Isaiah 6, which you just heard read, because I couldn't think of a better passage to just sit in for a morning and see God described. To see Isaiah encounter God's presence, to see him, well, we need to do the same things that he did, I suppose is a good way to say it. We need to do what Isaiah did, contemplate God's holiness, feel the weight of God's presence, worship God for who he is and what he's done. If you're the note-taking type, those are the three main points, what we're going to see in this passage this morning, an opportunity to contemplate God's holiness, to feel the weight of God's presence, and to worship God for who he is and what he's done. Now, if you've never heard of this Isaiah guy before, it'd probably be helpful to know a little bit about him. Uh, Jewish tradition holds that he was an aristocrat, uh, or at least closely connected with the royal line. He seems to have an unusual amount of access to the kings during his career as a prophet. Uh, He ministered as a prophet in Judah, which if if you're a history person, At at one point in in Israel's history, in the the history of God's chosen people, the the kingdom kind of split into two. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. He's in Judah. He's in the southern half of the nation or the southern nation. And uh, his career, it lasted almost 40 years. Six different kings, some good, some thoroughly incompetent. Moving from a period of relative prosperity to uh, eventual despair and uh, it seems like exile was right around the corner. Uh, Israel, or, or Judah, excuse me, the southern kingdom managed to rebuff these attacks from foreign enemies, but the northern kingdom fell in the middle of Isaiah's ministry. So you, I guess you could say he lived in uncertain times. Nobody knew what was coming next. When your closest ally is defeated by your most bitter enemy, then problems. But at the beginning of his career, Isaiah has this experience, a transformative uh, encounter with the grace of God that shapes his ministry and his perspective even through all of this uncertainty that he lives in. Take a look, if if you've got a Bible, Isaiah chapter 6, take a look at how Isaiah describes his experience. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The theologian John Calvin uh, calls this the moment that Isaiah perceived the inconceivable majesty of God. Isaiah sees the Lord, he sees God, and he describes this experience in the most majestic and regal and kingly terms possible. High and lifted up, robes and thrones, and temples. Well, that's not all that Isaiah sees. Look at verse 2. Above God, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Now, we don't know much about these angels. Um, This is the only time they really show up. The Hebrew word seraphim just means burning ones. And we don't know if that's because they had um, like a fiery appearance, perhaps, or if he calls them burning ones because of what happens later in this vision. Uh, But they're pictured as attendants, like they're waiting on God, waiting on God at his throne, ready to do whatever he commands. But they're not waiting silently, they're calling out to one another, and it's sort of got this feel of and an antiphonal call and response of one angel saying "Holy, holy, holy" and another responding "Holy, holy, holy" back, and it's going, it's going back and forth. And the combined presence, or the the, the combination of all this, the, the voice of the angels praising, the presence of God, it it causes the the temple's foundations to shake and for smoke to fill the room. It's an impressive sight. If you were a king and inviting people into your throne room, this is the kind of experience you'd like people to have, to to fall down in front of the majesty of your presence. And and this is what happens to Isaiah. He's kind of overwhelmed in the instant that he has this experience. Another commentator calls it a a scene of incomparable majesty. But I want you to notice, even with all the, the detail that Isaiah gives us, you'll notice that one person isn't described. He doesn't describe God other than to say that he's lifted up. We read about smoke and a throne and a robe and a shaking room and a burning fiery angels and the throne that he's sitting on, but we don't actually get a description of God. He remains undescribed in this passage. It's almost as if Isaiah can't even, can't even look on God. He's so bright, so unapproachable, so majestic that uh, Isaiah can only see the things around the edges of God. And so that's what he describes for us. Now, the angels, this is what's great. The angels here, they're, not, they're praising God, but they're not describing his appearance, because um, that wouldn't be as much helpful for us as they are describing God's attributes, his character, what he's like. Take a look at verse 3. One is calling to another and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, they're outlining for us two main attributes of God that are being described here, his holiness and his glory. And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at this morning because uh, looking at each one in turn, knowing who God is, knowing what he's like is central to right worship of God. It is absolutely critical that faith church remains centered on a right understanding of who God is. If we're going to move into 2017, continuing to fulfill our mission to declare the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, we have to have right front and center a a vision of who God is, of who he really is. That's what holds all that we do and all that we're trying to become and all that we're trying to accomplish. That's what holds it together. So as we walk through this passage, we're going to take the time to try to contemplate his holiness, to try to feel the weight of his presence So that we can have this picture of God front and center to help us worship him as he is and worship him for what he's done. So notice, the seraphim, as they describe God, they're calling out, holy, holy, holy. Now the Hebrew language often repeats words in order order to communicate uh, magnitude or to convey emphasis. Uh, So you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. We often don't translate it because it's a little odd in English. Uh, There's a couple places that are kind of funny. For instance, 2 Chronicles 31, uh, the people of Israel and Judah are bringing their tithes and their offerings into the temple. It's sheep and cattle and money and all this stuff. And uh, the Hebrew literally says they brought them in and piled them in heaps, heaps because they were in really big piles. They piled everything in piles of piles, Another place in 2 Kings, God says he's going to take a dry stream bed and he's going to make it full of pools. Actually, what the Hebrew says, he's he's going to make it pits, pits, pitted with pits. It's going to be so full of holes. The word is used twice. In another place, they bring out all the finest silver and the purest gold. The Hebrew says they brought out the silver, silver, and the gold, gold. It's a way of of taking a category and and elevating it, making it a superlative. But here, and only here in Scripture, do we have someone's character tripled. Some aspect of their character tripled. Here and in Revelation, when we read holy, 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 it's like taking a superlative and making it a super superlative. We're into an entirely new category of holiness here. One holy won't cut it. Two holies won't do. It takes three to get us up into the category of where God's holiness resides. So what is holiness? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What, what is holiness? Um, we sort of have this idea it means set-apartness, maybe separatedness, or at least there's an opposite between the holy and uh, what's common, you know, what's holy is set apart, and that's part of it. Um, some Hebrew scholars say that the word means something like infinitely unique superlativeness, which is kind of a fun phrase. I like that one. Uh, on the other hand, it, it can also carry with it ideas of radiance or of beauty or of brilliance. Uh, thinking, think of looking at a, an absolutely perfect diamond shining under the lights as The purity of its character reflects uh, rainbows into your eyes. This sort of captures the facets of the word holiness, of this infinitely unique superlativeness that, that shines in its brilliance and in its beauty. As Psalm 96 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So if we think of holiness as uh, the absolute infinite majesty and brilliance of God, it, it's so far beyond what we can think or imagine that it would astound us if we were confronted with it, if we came face to face with God's holiness, like Isaiah was. But it's not just the superlativeness of Isaiah or of God's uh, abilities that Isaiah sees, but it's also the, the magnificence of His character. Jonathan Edwards was probably the greatest American theologian so far, and and he wrote this in his book, Religious Affections. He said, the saints and the angels do behold the glory of God consisting in the beauty of his holiness, and it is this sight only that will melt and humble the hearts of men and wean them from the world and draw them to God and change them. He says, a sight of the awful greatness of God may overpower men's strength and be more than they can endure. But if the moral beauty of God be hid, the enmity of the heart will remain in its full strength and no love will be kindled. Think of Moses showing the power of God before Pharaoh and seeing the power of God was enough to earn Pharaoh's respect, but it didn't generate any love. It only hardened his heart. It didn't soften it. What Isaiah is seeing here is not just the, the majesty of God's power or of his wisdom, but he's also seeing his holiness, his beauty. See, God is powerful, and we should worship him for his power and respect his power. That's why we sing and say things like, Praise to the Lord God Almighty. But we shouldn't only worship his power, we also worship his holiness. And the beauty of his holiness, the Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, which I think the Swiss come up with way better names than we do. But uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar put it this way. He says, before the beautiful, no, not really before, but within the beautiful, the whole person quivers. He not only finds the beautiful moving, rather he experiences himself as being moved and possessed by it. That's what standing in God's holiness does. One pastor I read this week pointed out that uh, to worship God's holiness is fundamentally different from worshiping his power or his mercy or his grace or his justice. We can actually worship God's abilities selfishly. Have you ever thought about this? We can worship God's power because, hey, now I've got a powerful God on my side. My God's bigger than your God. My God can beat you up. Or we can worship God's wisdom because now I've got a wise God on my side who's going to give me guidance so I can get the things that I want. Or I've got a merciful God. I have a God who's going to forgive me and help me get rid of these guilty feelings I carry around all the time that I can't get rid of. Or we may even worship God's justice selfishly because now I have a God who will punish the people who have injured or offended me. But when we worship God for what he can do and what he can do, Give us, we're not loving and adoring and worshiping him for his sake. We're loving and adoring and worshiping him for our sake. It's selfish worship. It's like pandering to a person who's more powerful than you are, hoping that they'll come through for you when you need it. And if we do worship God as fundamentally powerful or even fundamentally merciful or gracious or just or wise, then when he doesn't deliver on what we think he's promised us, what happens? We walk away. We say things like, how could God possibly love me and allow that to happen to me? I thought God was more powerful than that. I thought he'd exercise that power on my behalf. How could God possibly expect me to believe this or believe that? How come God didn't come through when I asked him to? I did all the things he said. I prayed. I was religious. I went to church, and he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. That's worshiping God for what he can do, not for who he is. We can worship God's power or his mercy or his justice or his wisdom or his grace, and we can worship it selfishly because of what it does for us. To worship God's holiness is to worship his character that is of no practical use to us. Think about it. What do you do with God's holiness? What good is that for us? The only thing God's holiness does is get in our face and show us how unholy we are in comparison. That's it. So if you're worshiping God's holiness as the seraphim are, then you know that you're worshiping God for who he is, not just what he can do for you. Notice verse 3, it says that these seraphim are calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Like I said earlier, it has that antiphonal sense to it where they're calling it back and forth to one another. They're obsessed with God's holiness. They're they're floored by God's holiness. They can't get over it. They can't get enough of it. That's the whole theme of their song. It's just saying over and over and over again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we are confronted by God's holiness and worship him for the beauty of his holiness, for who he is, not just what he can do, then we know we have God, the real God, at the center of our worship. If we want to remain a people who are God-centered, we have to have God's holiness, the infinite uniqueness of his moral perfection, the unsurpassed greatness of his power, his holy wisdom, his holy love, his holy mercy right in front of us. Or we're going to lose sight of who God really is. We have to continue to contemplate his holiness. But in addition to that, I also want to lead us to see how Isaiah felt the weight of God's presence. Because we too need to be able to feel the weight of God's presence in our own lives. Notice again the seraphim as they're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. They're also saying the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, Glory is another one of those church words we use. And it's really hard to put a definition on it. We tend to think it means something like, I don't know, bright shimmery radiance or something like that sort of coming out of God. And actually, that's, that's what the New Testament flavor of it is. We use words like uh, radiance or a luminous manifestation of God's presence to, to help us understand his glory. But in the Old Testament, glory is a much earthier word. It's a word meaning heaviness or weight. Something heavy... Is the opposite of something light. Something weighty or real or permanent is the opposite of something light or temporary or illusory or insubstantial. When we're talking about God's glory, we're talking about God's permanence, about ultimate reality. When we talk about God's glory, what we're saying is that God alone is ultimate, God alone is real. God alone is, is weighty. There's a, a thickness and a heaviness and a, a realness to God. When it says that the whole earth is full of his glory, it's saying that the entire earth feels the presence, feels the weight of God's presence, that God's presence is pressing down on earth and those in it, that the glory of God, the weight of God is more real than the earth itself. It's a, it's a fact of physics, you know this, that lighter things always make room or make way for heavier things. I learned this very clearly when we lived in Texas. There's one rule of the, of the road, the larger vehicle always wins. The bigger vehicle always has the right of way. That's just the way it works. If you're small, don't go first. Because the heavier thing always moves the lighter thing, and you don't want to be the lighter thing. If you take a large boulder and you drop it into a lake, what happens? What happens? There's a big splash. There's a water quake. The water moves. The lighter thing moves out of the way and makes way for the heavier object. If you go step out on a sheet of thin ice, what happens? The ice gives way. You have more glory than the ice, and you go right through it. Just like the rock has more glory than the water, you have more glory than the ice. Yesterday, I was bringing the trash cans back up from, from the uh, street, and I did something funny as I put one of them away and, and moved funny and smacked my hand right on the handle of it. It was really, there was a weird bruise and kind of this big grape-sized lump on my hand. And in that moment, that trash can had more glory than I did. It was weightier. It was heavier. I couldn't move it. It was substantial, and I was the one who made way for it. Have you ever noticed as you read through the Bible that every time the presence of God shows up, the earth shakes? Every time the glory of God weighs down on the world, it's the world that moves and makes way. Just like here in the temple, like what Isaiah experienced, the weightiness of God, the glory of of God, it shook the temple. Think of Moses when he heads up to the mountain and the glory of God comes down and it's shaking the entire mountain. And Moses says, God's up there, let's go. And the people are like, why don't you go for us? Because when God's presence shows up, everything else gives way. Now, some of what I'm saying here I got from Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in Manhattan. He points out that when God is just a concept to us and not a reality to us, then we weigh more than God does. We have more glory than God. God as a concept doesn't weigh very much in our lives because He's just an idea, He's not a reality. See, the reality of God always weighs more than our ideas or our concepts of God. When God is just a concept, we can take him and twist him to fit anything we want him to fit. When God is just an idea or a concept, he doesn't come in and confront our agendas. He's fitted into our agendas, We use God as a means to an end. We go to church and try to be religious and read our Bibles and pray and all that because we want God to give us whatever it takes for us to get to our goals. We want God to come in and help us. God as a concept conforms to our agenda, not the other way around. God as a concept too, God as an idea doesn't come in and confront our beliefs. We define him by whatever beliefs are in vogue at the time or whatever ideas we feel are most important. We look at the Bible and we say things like, I, there, I can't believe that God would expect me to believe this or believe that. That's so regressive. That's so old-fashioned. How could God expect me to believe something that's so obviously wrong and out of date? Because God as a concept is lighter than we are. So we form him to fit us. We weigh more than God. We have more glory than he does. But God is a reality, When we're confronted with the realness of God, he is always heavier than we are. God, as a reality, comes in and confronts our beliefs. The real God comes in and disagrees with you. If it bothers you that there are parts of the Bible that bother you, then your fundamental assumption is that if there is a God, he wouldn't disagree with you. That makes you heavier than God. You have more glory than God does. Because the real God, the really real God, doesn't come in and adapt himself to our agendas or our beliefs as if all we need is inspiration or motivation or a few good quotes to put on our Facebook walls to get us to our goals. When we're confronted with the glory and the weightiness of the real God, we come come to realize that God isn't something you add to your life. God is someone who comes into your life and essentially blows it all to pieces. The real God doesn't come in and help you actualize your agenda. He blows it up and gives you a brand new one. God, the the real God doesn't come in and reinforce your beliefs. He blows them up and gives you new ones. When Isaiah walked into the temple and saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple and the smoke and the shaking and the seraphim and all that, he didn't go, oh, there really is a God. No, he already believed in God, but this experience... Is one where he moved, I think, from God as an idea to God as a reality. He felt the weightiness of the presence of God. That's why theologians have looked at this passage as, as Isaiah's calling, as his launching out into ministry, because this is what changed everything else about his life. And this is why I'm saying we need to feel the weight of God's presence. We need to contemplate his holiness and his glory until we feel the weight of his presence so that we can, like Isaiah, worship him for who he is and for what he's done. Now, check out Isaiah's reaction to this scene. As we move into talking about worshiping God for who he is and what he's done, look at how Isaiah reacts to this scene of uh, of God's unmitigated glory. Uh, He recounts for us his own words. Take a look at verse 5. And I said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response to seeing God's infinitely unique superlativeness and feeling the weight of the presence of the ultimate reality of God is to say, Woe is me. It's almost an inarticulate cry of despair, a groaning before the face of God. It's the cry of someone who has been uh, utterly reduced to nothing in God's presence. And that's why he follows it up immediately by saying, I am lost. I am lost. I am ruined. I am cut off. I, I am bereft. In other words, I am utterly destroyed. There's nothing left of me in the presence of God. I have nothing on which to stand. The ultimate reality, the the weightiness and the splendor of God has impressed itself upon Isaiah. And in a moment, he realizes in the presence of God, I'm nothing. So he confesses his sinfulness. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And given those qualifications, now my eyes having seen the king, the Lord of hosts, I am undone. Now, we're not really sure why Isaiah focuses on his lips. Uh, some think, I mean, obviously it stands in for the whole of his person, but some think he, he uses lips because he's a prophet. That's where his words come from. Uh, he may have been a very eloquent young man, like this is the, this is the best part of him. The best part of his abilities is, is his rhetoric, his ability to speak. And he's saying even this in God's presence is worth Nothing. But not only that, he he lives in the presence of a people who are unclean in the same way he is, a a, a people who have nothing to offer to God. It's almost like Isaiah is saying, uh, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter where you've come from, what race or ethnicity you are or what your last name is. In the presence of God, you and I have nothing. We have nothing but a confession of our unworthiness. here's the thing, when you realize that, when you realize that in God's presence we have absolutely nothing but our own unworthiness, that's how you know you've actually gotten into the presence of God. God, the real God, not the concept God or the idea of God. When you start to think, I'm a sinner, when you stop putting the blame for what's wrong with the world out there in others and start saying, you know what, it's in here, it starts right here. When you start realizing I am more selfish I am more evil, I am more capable of heartlessness and pettiness and cruelty and malice than I ever thought. When, when we realize that, then we know we're actually in the presence of God and his holiness and his glory. And to realize this is who I am in God's presence, this is who God is in my presence, that in itself is an act of worship. To say, woe is me, I am undone, is to worship God by recognizing who he is and who I am in comparison. When I was in college, I briefly considered joining the Iowa National Guard. Uh, I was a saxophone player, I was a music minor in college, played saxophone in our school band. There were only two or three saxophone players, so it wasn't all that difficult to have first chair. I thought I was pretty decent at it, and my uh, private instructor was the conductor for the Iowa National Guard Band, and he wanted me to join the National Guard so I could come play in the band. So I went with him once, uh, one weekend, to drill in Fairfield, Iowa, just to experience what it was like, right? So I bring my saxophone, I'm thinking, I'm I'm pretty good here, and I I sit down with these guys who have been playing for 30 or 40 years, and we're given some brand new music, we're all sight reading it, it's new to everyone, And these guys are just playing through it like they've rehearsed it a hundred times. And for me, the notes are flying by so fast. I have no idea where we are. I have no idea what's going on. I'm just sort of sitting there honking out a note every few seconds, hoping it's the right one. (laughs) And I'm sitting in the presence of of human superlativeness at playing a musical instrument. And I thought I was pretty good at it, and, and the reason I remember this moment so clearly is because I thought I was pretty decent, and then I'm sitting in the presence of someone who actually is good at it, and I'm like, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. <laughs> right? it's, this is what happens whenever you get in the presence of someone who's better than you are at the thing you've staked your identity on. Right? Every time you think, this is the core part of me, and then you, come, you run up against someone who's better at it than you are, it's crushing absolutely crushed my self-esteem as a saxophone player, which was good because then I actually started practicing. (laughs) But if that's what happens when we're in the presence of human superlativeness, how much more does that happen when we're in the presence of God's infinitely unique superlativeness? Think about just one attribute of God. Think about his love. If you were to stand in the presence of God and feel just his divine love, our very first perception would be In comparison to that, how pathetically small and self-centered is my ability to love? When Isaiah found himself in the presence of God, the experience crushed him. If God is real, if he is infinitely uniquely greater than any of us are, then it would have to feel that way. There would be no other way for it to feel. So there's only one thing to say when you stand before God. I am lost, I'm undone, I'm a goner, I'm done for. And it's a terrifying evaluation because it's true. Notice as soon as Isaiah says, as soon as he confesses his sin, I am a man of unclean lips, one of the angels starts flying at him with a burning coal in his hand, so hot he has to use tongs to hold the fire of God, and he's coming flying right at Isaiah, and Isaiah is thinking, well, it's been a good life. This is what fire means in the Bible. Every other place fire shows up as symbolic of something, it's symbolic of God's judgment and his wrath. When the unclean stands in the presence of the holy unlawfully, the fire comes out and consumes it. God's judgment and his wrath comes through in the fire, and Isaiah sees this burning coal coming at him, right? And there's only one thought. This is it. I think Isaiah was certain that he was about to be crushed into non-existence by the holiness of God. And then the fire touches his mouth. And the very first burn he felt was so deep, he thought it had went all the way to his heart. Hurt worse than anything he'd ever felt. But then he noticed it wasn't consuming him, it was purifying him. And the angel of the Lord puts words to this symbol so that we know what the symbol symbolizes. He tells him what he's done. Uh, he says here, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for notice isaiah didn't ask for forgiveness he didn't ask for purification he didn't ask to be cleansed he didn't go seek it or seek it out it was just given to him the moment he confessed his sin without making a single move to god god moved towards him the moment isaiah admitted his sin god provided the sacrifice said so this fire of god is the sacrifice that will forgive you of your sins. I've said this already, so I'm just gonna say it again a couple of times to make sure we drive it home. If you're writing anything down, this is kind of the main point of this whole morning. Contemplating God's holiness and feeling the weight of his presence should lead us to worship, to worship him for who he is and what he's done. If you didn't catch it the first time, contemplating God's holiness and feeling the weight of his presence should lead us to worship him for who he is and what he's done, which means seeing him as he really is, seeing us as we really are, seeing our own selfishness and feeling the weight of our insufficiency, our inability to measure up to God, seeing who God really is, holy and glorious. Well, let's apply Isaiah's vision to our own lives. We need to, as a church and as individuals, we need to contemplate God's holiness. We need to feel the weight of God's presence. We need to worship God for who he is and what he's done. The question is, how? How do we contemplate his holiness? How do we feel the weight of his presence? I think the best way for us, or, or the, the most succinct way, or the, the best place for us to look To see God's holiness, his glory, our sinfulness, and his grace all on display at the same time as at the cross of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus was another person who stood before God. He stood before the judgment and the wrath of God. He didn't deserve to be there. He was the one person in all of history who could stand before God without being overwhelmed by his holiness and his glory because he shared in that holiness and that glory because Jesus was also God himself. But the fiery judgment and wrath of God came on Jesus and consumed him so that it could purify us. He took the fire of judgment so that you and I could taste the sweetness of God's divine grace. If you want to see God's holiness and feel the weight of his presence, look at the cross. In his introduction to the book of Hebrews, the author of that particular letter writes this. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If you want to see the holiness of God and feel the weight of God's glory, look at the cross. Because it shows us our own sinfulness. It shows us who we are in God's presence and makes us aware of his glory and his holiness and should engender in us a gratefulness for the provision of grace that God has given to us. And when we do these things... We respond in worship. John Piper has famously written that missions exists because worship doesn't. It's probably one of the most brilliant things he's ever said. He's arguing that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, not even faith missionary church. We're not here for missions. Missions is not the ultimate goal. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before God, he says, missions will be no more. It's, missions is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. The worship of God for who he is and what he has done, that's the fuel for everything else we do at Faith. Missions included. Worship is the reason we gather together in communities large and small. Worship is the reason we discipline ourselves into into conformity with the image of Christ. Worship is the reason we sacrifice ourselves and our time and our possessions to the cause of what Piper calls inviting others into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. But we can only rightly worship if we rightly understand who God is and what he's done for us and then respond to his actions on our behalf with love and gratitude. See, worship is the act of responding to the beauty of God's holiness, to the beauty of God's character and his actions on our behalf. Worship is responding to who God is and what he's done. You've probably heard this before. The word uh, worship itself comes from this Old English thing that combines uh, worth worth and ship, ship being a suffix that means having the skill or ability in something. Worship literally means uh, having a skilled ability to ascribe glory or, or worth to God. The ability or the skill, the craft of making God's worthiness known to yourself and to others. For years, my dad kept in his office this little, um, this little statue that I made in kindergarten. It it sort of looked like I took all the clay I could find, um, sort of smashed it into this fat, weird glob, painted it orange, and put a face on it. Um, I have no idea what it's supposed to be. But as a, as a kindergartner, as a five-year-old, you know, I made this thing for my dad, and, and essentially it was an act of, of ascribing worth putting into concrete form how valuable I felt my, my father is and my relationship with him is. There wasn't much skill involved in it because I was five. Now, imagine if I go to my dad today at 33 and I bring him this freakishly little weird orange sculpture and I say, here, dad, this symbolizes what I think you're worth and what I, how I value our relationship. What, what would he say? I doubt he'd put it on his desk for the next 20 years. Because as we grow and mature, we're supposed to also grow and mature in our ability to express the value we find in the things that are valuable, right? Worship is actually a skill. Have you ever thought about this? Worship is something you get better at through repetition, through doing it over and over and over, through involving yourself into a broader community of those who are worshiping, through learning from other people, Uh, How to worship through uh, reading and memorizing and singing and praying psalms and other prayers that other people have written. Because while God wants us to be authentic before him and express what we really feel, sometimes what I really feel is a freakishly orange blob that, that I am much too old to present to God. And I need other people's expertise to show me what it means to worship him. I need other skilled worshipers to come alongside and say, we pray this prayer because it's been prayed for 2,000 years and because it shows us how we're supposed to feel, not how we do feel, but how we're supposed to feel. See, worship is the the skill, the craft of responding to the beauty of God's holiness. It's something we learn as we gather together. St. Augustine famously wrote in one of his sermons that singing belongs to the one who loves, or as others have translated it, Only the lover sings. Only the lover sings. Only someone who loves can sing to and for and about the one that they love. C.S. Lewis says, There's at least one thing that you will not find in hell, and that's music. We take our words... And we, we marry them to music because together they communicate something to God that we couldn't communicate otherwise. And we do it in different styles and with different preferences. Actually, I don't like uh, using the term style or preferences to talk about, uh, talk about worship because worship, in, to my thinking, is more like a language, like a dialect or an idiom. It, it's not about me setting aside my preferences for someone else or choosing a style. It's about the language with which I have been formed to express myself and express my worship to God. So as long as faith continues to gather people who are attracted to our mission of glorifying God through the gospel, we'll continue to have services that express a heart's language of worship, whether your heart's language is what we would call traditional or contemporary, or something in the middle, or neither, or bluegrass, or whatever it is, as soon as there's a critical mass for it, then we, as a people, have to be, become conversant in expressing our worship to God in that language, these languages we've been steeped in, and formed in, and grew up with, and adopted. Because as, as lovers of God, we express our love for God in the skillful act of ascribing worth to Him, of making his worth visible for ourselves and for others, Uh, through the language of song and rhythm and rhyme and poetry and melody in which we're fluent. See, God has invited us into the act of worshiping him. Worship is always and fundamentally a response to who God is and what he's done. We are never the ones who initiate worship, We're only ever invited. That's what it means to worship God for who he is and what he's done. All right, well, I fulfilled my promise to talk too fast and go too long, so let's bring this home. One thing I want you to see as we wrap this up, Isaiah did not get a vision of God because he was more spiritually attuned to God than everyone else around him. He saw God because God revealed himself. And thankfully, God has revealed himself to each and every one of us. As the author of Hebrews said, in times past he revealed himself through the prophets in various and sundry ways, but now he has revealed himself in his son. Jesus himself is a radiance of God's glory. Jesus himself lived out the holiness of God in life. So if we want... To contemplate God's holiness, to feel the weight of his presence, we have to look at Jesus' life, at his sacrificial death for us on the cross, at the new life he brings us through his resurrection, and at the promise of eternal love relationship with him and with God throughout eternity. We have to contemplate his holiness, feel the weight of his presence, until you're moved by the beauty of God to worship him for who he is and what he's done. Pray with me. Father, even as we open your word and read it, we recognize that we are only allowed to do this by your gracious invitation. That if we were to stand before you unwilling to admit our sin, then the fire from your altar that would come towards us would not purify, it would consume. All we have is nothing. Give us an experience of your holiness. Help us to feel the weight of your glory so that we may in turn be a people whose habitual response is worship, our response to your beautiness. In Jesus' name, amen.